Hello, you're listening to a Zen Studies Society podcast. To learn more about our community of Zen Buddhist practitioners, please visit zenstudies.org. Shumon Katoshu, Entangling Vines, Case 13, Rochu's Hell. Sai Rochu asked Joshu Jushin, Have any of the sages ever fallen into hell? They are the first to go there, replied Joshu. But they are enlightened teachers, said Rochu. Why would they fall into hell? Well, if I didn't fall into hell, how could I help you? Joshu answered. Good afternoon on this sixth day of our anniversary session. And it is, well, it is easy to say that it was a wonderful time walking with all of you around the lake after paying our homage to the various deities that are enshrined around Sangha Meadow. It might seem like a weird thing for Zen practitioners to engage in these outwardly religious-looking kind of activities. But as a dedicated Zen practitioner, one gives oneself to that what is in front of us. And those here who are wearing ordained robes, we are the ones who are entrusted and who have opened ourselves to carrying forward these practices and these traditions. If you see anything wrong with them, it might be a lack of putting yourself into it. So let's always put ourselves into it without reserve completely. Whatever the chant says, it's not about understanding. It is not about believing that there are any cosmic, wonderful things that Roshi talked about yesterday. It is not about believing it, but getting to know through doing that it is beyond belief. It is quite muggy today, isn't it? And I'm sorry when I fidget around with these robes. All of these robes, they are starched with uh, chrysanthemum starch. And they cooperate usually very nicely as long as the humidity is below a certain level. And then suddenly the chrysanthemum starch does exactly what we are supposed to do in Sishin. It lets go. <laughs> It lets go and the shapeless form of the Buddha's robe becomes manifest and things uh, start to bunch up in places where you don't want them to bunch up. And as you all know from sitting, if you're sitting on a cushion and your robes are folded over in the wrong space, you have 40 minutes to watch your legs go completely numb. And then you're supposed to go and get up. We try our best. 
So when you get up and you are in a state like that, please do not jump up. Just take the time you need to get up safely. We want you all to be physically able to do this practice. And I have also to say today, I was really wonderfully touched by seeing the progress in Roshi walking with us in the way that we have known her to walk with us. Also, when I prepared for this talk, I astounded, or I was astonished myself suddenly that I became so excited about hell. <laughs> it is quite, quite a fascinating topic, hell. And again, the cosmic flow of things makes it so that this case, number 13, comes right on the sixth day of a session. Does anyone have feelings about that? Should it have come earlier as a preview? Or is this a review? Or, or is it a sneak peek? Huh? It might be all of that. Might be all of that. The main protagonist who we have today, again, is Joshu Jushin. We have heard a lot about Joshu, so let me just remind you that he lived from 778 until 897, and he appears in 23 cases in the Shumon Katoshu. The second person who appears here is Sai Rochu. I actually mispronounced his name in the Japanese reading. Uh, it was a little dark, but now I see I read Sui. So please forgive me for making that mistake. Sai Rochu, all we know about him is that he lived at the same time because he must have been able to meet Joshu. There are no dates, so we can only say he lived in the 9th century. There is no biography known, no details about his life, and the word Rochu indicates that he was some kind of government official probably at that time. In, I think, the Rinzai Roku, he's referred to as Dr. Rochu uh, in the Chinese name. But that's really all we know about him. However, one of the things that we learn when we engage in formal koan study is first to examine, examine the question that opens up such a koan. Why would Sai Rochu ask Joshu Jushin, have any of the sages ever fallen into hell? Every question you find in a koan, please look at them very carefully. And then the next thing is look at the person and the state in which they were when they asked the question. What would bring somebody to ask a question like that? We spoke about Hakuin a little bit and about Ganto, how he died with the sword. And Roshi told us the story that it even moved the young Hakuin, the story about Ganto meeting such a violent fate from which Zen practice could not save him. It moved him to stop practicing for some time 
until he came to the mushi, mushi boshi day, the bug drying day, where all the books are opened outside when it's not as humid as today. And by then, the, the bugs that are caught between the pages, because they probably make their way in there, paper is a very nice source for food, and they dry them, and that's where he found that book. So he had a question like that. From that point of view, it's not surprising that Sai Rochu would ask about, what about hell? What about the sages? And also, if you hear the question, have any of the sages ever fallen into hell? Let me check with the TSA. Let's see if they have checked anyone through the gates of hell who was a sage. Now, of course, who could, who could answer a question like that? But here is already a thought of there is a way not to go through that gate. And there are many ways with the TSA. There are certain words you better not say. Sages. What are sages? Is my next question that I ask myself. The term here, Daibo Chishiki. Daibo are the same characters as in Daibo Satsu. Chi, 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 Yochi, Chi, wisdom, Chiki. So it's a term that is translated from the Sanskrit word Kalyana Mitra. And often it's translated as spiritual friend, good friends. Those of you who were here during Yamakawa Roshi's uh, Teisho heard a little bit about good, close friends, a wonderful term. It is defined in the second century scripture, which is the Mahaprajnaparamita Shastra in chapter 14. All beings obtain the mind of equanimity by thinking of one other with the feelings one would feel, for example, for one's spiritual friend. That Shastra was written by Nagarjuna. The treatise on the great virtue of wisdom, Maha Prajnaparamita Shastra. This book, it contains five volumes, so it's quite voluminous, and represents one of the earliest encyclopedias of Buddhism, where you can look things up. Second century, it's quite, a, quite early. And also it has a commentary on the Panka Vimsati Saha Srika Prajnaparamita. And it says, all the Tathagatas depend on the profound Prajnaparamita to realize the true nature, tatata, suchness, shinyo, dharmata, the summit of all dharmas and attain anuttara samyak sambodhi. Did you realize that you chant this word every morning, every meal? 
in the Hanyasinyo. Anukutara Samyako Sambodai. Anutara Samyak Sambodhi. The most supreme enlightenment. That is why it is said that the profound Prajnaparamita gives birth to all the Buddhas. It is the mother of the Buddhas, the perfection of wisdom. So this Kalyanamitra is also a feeling that we find very strong in the Tibetan, the Vajrayana tradition. And it's even explained here in the second century in, in, in the scripture as in the course of innumerable generations, all beings have been one's spiritual friend, Kalyana Mitra, father, mother, elder brother, younger brother, elder sister, younger sister, and relative. Furthermore, according to the true nature of the, of the dharmas, there is no father or mother, no elder or younger brothers, no elder or younger sisters. People who are submerged in the error of self-belief, in their existence, and thus there is the question of father and mother elder and younger brother, elder and younger sister. Therefore, it is not an untruth when, by virtue of a wholesome mind, we consider one another with the feelings we would feel, for example, for one's spiritual friend. Everything is our mother, our father, our kin, expressed in other words when you look at the real form of the universe and you don't call it the emanation of the Tathagata, we should call it what? This is myself. This is myself. There is no other. This is myself. I fondly recall Noritake Roshi telling the story about the tissue on the ground. The tissue on the ground. Here in the Zendo, uh, at night, he gave instructions in an informal Dharma talk, and he took just the tissue and he threw it on the ground. And he explained the various types of uh, interactions human beings have with that piece of trash. Those who don't even see it, they just walk by it. There are some who see it. That's, I didn't cause this, that's not mine. Somebody should pick it up. Where are the cleaners? Don't they have cleaners here? The person who sees it and picks it up and throws it away is the next kind of more awakened state, more conscious to what's going on. And that's 
where Noritake Roshi said, everybody would usually stop their thinking. But now there is something else. Here comes the Buddhist, the Zen practitioner, who before picking it up, bows to it and this is Buddha. This is myself. Even insentient things. Thank you for being the bodhisattva of receiving snot. <laughs> it's quite profound teaching, very profound teaching. We could also say, this is our mother, this is our sibling, this is myself. And if anything counts in the world we live in, it is how we treat each other how we treat these insentient things, even insentient things. So let's not just keep that as words we chant, but let's really put ourselves into that relationship with everything that we come in contact with. It doesn't mean we have to slow everything down and uh, throw ourselves on the ground before we want to pick up something that somebody has dropped. Yeah? Sometimes it's also advisable to wear a glove when you pick up certain things where you don't know what has been deposited in it. But the spirit of doing it and not looking at it as refuse. There is no trash. That sounds familiar, right? There is no trash. Who remembers that chapter? Yeah, if you haven't read it, it's one of the first chapter in Soto, uh, Soko Morinaga's book, teaching about his, uh, talking about his teacher, Goto uh, Zuigan uh, Roshi. There is no trash. So we made it to the sages in the question. That's our first step. Now the next thing is falling into hell. Brings up the question, well, where is hell? Where the hell is hell? <laughs> so while in deep samadhi, I consulted with the Buddhist uh, hell Google Maps, <laughs> and I looked up the, mal, uh, the, the, the map of the hell realms. And it's quite interesting in the Buddhist context, context, what we know about hells. There's, first of all, there are several texts in the Pali uh, Sutta Pitaka that describe Buddhist hell. Now, of course, a lot of that comes from the pre-existing teachings of the Vedas. But there's a specific sutta, the Devadutta Sutta, which is in the middle collection, the Majjhima Nikaya. It's part number 130, and that goes into very, very deep detail about the hells. And it's also an interesting uh, sutta to look at because it's, it recounts the interaction of somebody meeting Yama, who is in charge of hell. And there's the question and answer. And from the Buddhist teaching point of view, it Yama asked him, I have sent you 
the first, second, third, fourth, fifth, and so on, many, the messenger of the teachings of the law. Did you see the first messenger? And the person examined says, no, I did not see. And then it's explained in various examples. You have not seen the newborn lying on its back in its own excrement, crying for someone to help them as they were abandoned, as their mother died next to them. No, I have not seen that. And then comes the, uh, the explanation what the hellish punishment is to be received for that. But it goes through all these examples and it cites all these human really touching places that we tend to look away from, that we should not look away from. Did we receive the messenger that King Yama in his wisdom sent to us to give us a chance to act as mature, feeling, compassionate human beings when he sent the parent and the child crossing the river on our southern border and they ended up floating as bodies? The same questions are very important for us to keep in mind because, as we will talk about a little later, is the creation of hell is quite a, an interesting process and already you might have an inkling who is involved in the creation of those hells. However, back to what our uh, map of the hell realms looked like. There's considerable detail that describes the torments, a the torments a person experiences as the results of the karmas through not responding to these messengers and to the messages that are sent. There are cold hells and there are hot hells. There are several Mahayana sutras that contain also these descriptions. So it's not a Theravada thing that we can say, oh yeah, this is the religious kind of Buddhism. No, it's not. These are the roots of what our practice also entails. Several hells and hundreds of sub-hells. Maybe you could make a career as a sub-hell chief. That's something to aspire to. But most often in the Mahayana, one hears of eight hot or fire hells and eight cold or ice hells. According to the tradition, the ice hells are above the hot hells. The ice hells are described as frozen, desolate plains or mountains where people must dwell naked. The first ice hell is called Arbuda, the hell of freezing while skin blisters. Nir Abuda, 
the hell of freezing while the blisters break open. Atata, the hell of shivering. Hahava, the hell of shivering and moaning. Huhuva, the hell of chattering, uh, chattering teeth and moaning. Utpala, the hell where one's skin turns as blue as a blue lotus flower. Now remember in the previous talk, sometimes Madhushri holds a blue lotus flower. Padma, the lotus hell, where one's skin cracks open like the lotus flower. And Mahapadma, the great lotus hell, where one becomes so frozen, the body falls to pieces. So actually, this Majima Nikaya 130 describes all of that in even more detail with the offenses. And after the cold hells, you are promoted to the hot hells. The first one is called Samjiva, the hell of reviving or repeating attacks. Kala Sutra, the hell of black lines or wires that are used as guides for the saws that appear in the next hell. Samgata, the hell of being crushed by big, hot things. Raudava, the hell of screaming while running around on burning ground. Maha Raudava, the hell of great screaming while being eaten by animals. Tapana, the hell of scorching heat while being pierced by spears. Pratapana, the hell of fiercely scorching heat while being pierced by tridents. And Avici, hell without interruption while being roasted in ovens. And then you start over. Does it sound vaguely familiar? <laughs> vaguely. Well, the tenzo, held without interruption while being roasted in ovens, especially if the fan is not working, right, in the kitchen. Sometimes you could think there is a hell where people walk around with a stick and you are so desperate you ask to be beaten. <laughs> that sounds familiar. So there is many, many descriptions here in the Asian context of hell. But it's, of course, hell is not limited to East Asia. We have very good examples right in the Western culture. You know any description of hell that's quite interesting to read? Yeah, Dante. In Dante Alighieri's Inferno, which is part of Divina Commedia, the divine comedy, the poet and pilgrim Dante embarks on a spiritual journey. Hell and spirituality goes hand in hand. Guided by the soul of the Roman poet Virgil, Dante travels down through the nine circles of hell, 
and witnesses the punishments eternally suffered by the souls of deceased sinners. It's not far away here, not far away at all. And what I like most about it is the advertisement at the entrance to the hell. It says there in, in, in Italian, Lasciate ogni speranza, voi che entrate. Let all hopes go, ye who enter. This is a plaque that belongs right over the door of the Zendo. That's where it belongs. It's exactly the same in this practice. It sounds kind of dire. Why should I let all my hopes, I, I hope to awaken sometime in the future. That is the problem. Sometimes we sit in the Zendo. We have hopes to get out of there. I hope this is over soon. <laughs> Again, that is somewhere in the future. As long as hopes are tied to being somewhere else than where you are, they are not to your benefit. They are not to our benefit to hope for something will happen in the future because it takes us away from attending to what is right in front of us. All the people in these hells that we heard about here, they are too busy to hope to get out even. They can't escape. They have no hopes. It sounds like a letdown. Let your hopes go. But... Don't entertain anything else than what is right in front of you. There is our innate, strong feeling that we need to become complete and that we aspire to it. But aspiration and working towards it is very different than having a hope department that has certain dates in the future. Very different. It's the great, uh, the great diligence, the assiduity that we have to manifest that replaces hope. Everybody knows about the man who wanted to win the lottery. And he prayed to his God every day. Oh, God, please, let me win the lottery. For years and years, and it never worked out. And he is pleading and pleading. Finally, he's so desperate, he yells, Oh, God, God, please, let me win the lottery. And the big voice from upstairs comes and says, Why don't you buy a ticket? <laughs> It's the same here. The assiduity, 
the application, the actualization of what we are doing is the ticket that we have to have for any chance to meet our aspirations. Things come naturally to very few people that are just what they hope for. Things come very easily to us, especially if we don't want them to come to us. So these are the healths that are described here. But what are the most important healths to us? Of course, our health. You probably have experienced a state on the cushion that seemed like hell to you. And it is very real, the feelings that come there. And Buddhist teaching as a teaching that resides in our intellectual understanding offers no relief from that. As an example, here's a story. There was the famous Yamaoka Teshu. He's a famous samurai of the Bakumatsu period, which is just when the Meiji Restoration came, so 1873 in that kind of time frame. And he played an important role in that restoration of the Meiji era. He is also noted as the founder of the Itto Shoden Mutoryu school of swordmanship. So he was a warrior as well as a Zen student. And as a young student of Zen, he visited one master after another. Someday he arrived at Shokokuji in Kyoto, where the master was Dokuon Ogino. Desiring to show his attainment, Yamaoko Teshu bowed before the master in the tea room while they were there and said, the mind, Buddha, and sentient beings, after all, do not exist. The true nature of phenomena is emptiness. There is no realization, no delusion, no sage, no mediocrity. There is no giving and nothing to be received. Dokuon Roshi, who was a smoker, was sitting there smoking his long bamboo pipe and listened to it, didn't say anything. But suddenly, he whacked Yamaoka Teshu with his pipe. The young man became quite angry. And Dokon said, well, if nothing exists, where did this anger come from? Yamaoka Teshu forced a smile and exited. Feelings become real through us, through how we relate to what is. In this case, Yamaoka Tesu felt insulted. He held on onto a specific belief of himself 
And if there is something to be struck, be prepared to receive 60 or multiples of blows like that because there's something to be struck. I like this story very much because Dokuon Ogino was the teacher of Banryo Zenzo, who was the teacher of Joten Soko Miura, who was the teacher of Kyozan Joshuroshi. So that's in the Inzan lineage. Let's go a little further back. This, this story about Yamaoka Teshu reminds me very much of the story with uh, Hakuin getting his nose twisted by his teacher. So here's something similar. It goes also back to Hakuin, and it also includes another soldier, another samurai by the name of Noboshke. So Noboshke came to Hakuin and asked, is there really a paradise and a hell? Who are you? asked Hakuin. I am a samurai, the warrior replied. You, a soldier, exclaimed Hakuin. What kind of ruler would have you as his guard? Your face looks like like a beggar's face. Noboshke became so angry that he starts, started to draw his sword. Hakuin continued, Oh, so you have a sword. It's probably not even sharp enough to cut my head off. As Noboshke drew his sword, Hakuin remarked, here open the gates of hell. At these words, the samurai, perceiving the teaching from the master, sheathed his sword and bowed. And Hakuin said, Here open the gates of paradise. When I think back to the many, many teishos I have heard from Joshu Roshi, hell and heaven came up at times. And one of the things that Joshu Roshi used to say a lot is, there are no restaurants in hell and there are no bathrooms in heaven. An interesting thing to say. It just means nothing is complete. There is no complete hell. There is no complete heaven. By the fact of the separation of the two, inherently, they are incomplete. Please keep that in mind. One of the sentences that I wrote down here about our hells is reminding ourselves of a very important Buddhist teaching, which is called the three marks of existence. The three lakshana, which is, anyone know by any chance? Impermanence. Anicca, impermanence. Mujo in Japanese. No self. No self. Muga, anatta. 
And there's one, one, one more. Duka. Duka or ku in, in Japanese. Kurushi, which means painful, bitter, really. The, the Chinese character for uh, dukkha is the character for bitter. Kurushimu is to suffer. And that really tells us a lot about the creation of hell and heaven realms. First of all, Anicca. These places are not eternal. They are subject to impermanence. We know that the bell will ring, just not to our liking. And that liking could be that we are in excruciating pain and we went through the stages of, ah, oh, this is such a great Jigijitsu. He always rings the bell on time. What, is he asleep? <laughs> Ring, the Ring the bell. All those stages and suddenly, bing, poof, it is gone. On the other end of the spectrum, the most sublime samadhi will end with kinin. <laughs> That's how it is. Anicca. It's just we don't believe it when it comes to the hells that we create while we sit on that cushion or while we are out in the world. It will change. The, set, the sentence that I wrote down for myself and that I remind myself constantly about is that only a fixated self abides. In order to have places like hell and heaven, we have to have abiding. Abiding will only be manifest when you stop participating in the activity of change. When you hold on to something, on some kind of fixated self. A self that does not spontaneously arise to the circumstances that present themselves in this ever unfolding of truth is dominated by the conditions that are fixated. Think of the Diamond Sutra. If there is no personality, no ego entity, no separation that abides, there can be no stuckness in any of these places. Past mind, present mind, future mind, you cannot grasp it. Develop the mind that abides nowhere that does not fixate. Another thing that we have to consider here is anatta, no self. 
We know that Shunyata teaches us that things inherently do not have Shwabhava, selfhood, fixated selfhood. The example that is often cited in this context is the example of a table. We call it a table because for our human use, it is a table. So it's a self-centered view of a composite objects that serves our activity of living as a human being. But from the point of view of the Buddhist teaching, there is nothing fixated about that table. The table, and now please think of Bodhisattva's vow. In any event, the table is an event that is manifesting in front of us. It is not a fixated entity, that abstracted use that we gain from it, but it carries in it pieces of wood that grew somewhere as a tree, a tree that took 80% of the carbon from the air, from the CO2 that's in the atmosphere. And I bet you that in each of these floorboards of wood, there is at least one particle that went through the lungs of Jesus Christ, of the Buddha, of every human being that has existed in the past. So that timeless, no self, with the impermanence is this wonderful cosmic unfolding that we obstruct by putting our human concepts onto it. And it's fine to have human concepts. We could not, I could not talk to you if we hadn't a common language. We couldn't have society if we didn't have a functioning agency of selfhood. But the problem starts at the moment where it becomes fixated. Fixated and held onto conditions that are not allowed to change. Willpower, you might think, is what it is. But I wouldn't say that. The second one, anatta, no self, is one of the most encouraging messages that Buddhism has for us. When we sit here in Zazen, in a session, when we bump into the artificially and purposefully set up obstacles for that agency of fixated self, we expose ingrained patterns. But remind yourselves, these ingrained patterns that seem so recalcitrant are conditions that have the attribute of anatta. These conditions are not yours. They're not your fault. You do not own them. They are conditions. However, a fixated self will always use anything it can use 
to perpetuate its stuckness. There are two sides to it. One is the wonderful side. Oh, I am so smart. I am beautiful. I am this, I am that. If it cannot sustain itself in that way, rather than letting go of being fixated on this I am self, we get the instant flip. The other side comes out. I'm worthless. I can't get this. This is not for me. And all kinds of negative attention. Don't be fooled. Guilt about things is one of those. Oh, I feel so guilty. I didn't perform perfectly. I made a mistake. Oh, all of that is just look at it carefully. Anatta. It, this process wants you to identify with it in order to stay fixated. Because the most important words are always here. I am and I am the master. When we sit in Zazen, master, yeah, who is the real master? So don't fall for the guilt as a means of the fixated self to further perpetuate, perpetuate and ingrain itself because that's just what he wants to do. Kurushimu, Dukkha, the bitterness of this comes out in the experience that we have. But again, there is something to be said to that. Bitterness is a sensation. It is a taste. If it is free of value judgment, it is just bitterness. This tea I just had is delightfully bitter. The bitterness of listening to Mozart's Requiem, of music that makes you feel the sting of death and suffering, is almost sweet. Fill in whatever you want here as an experience and be aware the only, and this is a point that Joshua Roshi always drove home and which is really, really important is this world, we can only experience it because it is incomplete. You know, the moment your body and mind falls off, there is nobody to experience anything. There's nothing to be experienced. Wow, that sounds like a boring life, right? <laughs> but you come back. We come back from that. And then the 10,000 things that are here, they can only be experienced by us, by that breaking up. It's not that negative feelings, bitterness, suffering is something that... that, that 
It's one color in this hue of millions, millions, millions of colors. And it's the same, let's call it friction. Subject and object, they exert friction. The only thing that lets us see is the friction between what we see and the one who sees. The hearing, when we become aware of it, is the friction between that what is heard and the person who hears. And all that we experience functions in that same way. We only have to learn to remove our self-centered value judgments on it. And most of them are based upon this I am self wanting to have things its way. The caution that comes with this is the I am self is not bad. Please don't think that because again it would be applying the same two-dimensional kind of grid over a much more multi-dimensional process. Endless dimensions. That's what the self is. The I am self is only one event of it that will come and go. So this event-based thinking and experience is really important in Zazen. Ah, ah, from one to the next. We need the I am self in society, otherwise society cannot exist. And we have to help mature that agency of the I am self to a state that will help us address the problems of this world in a not self-based way. I've been asked several times in Doksan about, yeah, but what to do about the things that are wrong? What can the young people do uh, in, in this world? It's wonderful what is happening with the new generations that we see f stream into the public eye and bringing forth policy proposals and all kinds of things that are wonderful. Anything that helps to alleviate suffering and injustices is really welcome. However, from the point of view of a Buddhist practitioner, I have to say, going even one step further is the real resolution of all of these uh, issues. If we don't learn and if we don't start with ourselves to dissolve the fixation of this self-centered I am self, benevolent policies are just a band-aid that will last so long until the other phase of self-centered uh, policies will take over again. And you might ask, where can I make a difference? And it is right here, yourself. When we leave this mountain and go out into the world, we are the lion of Manjushri that proclaims the Dharma of no self. We have to learn how to 
become so nimble as shapeshifters that we can be in the agency of self without getting stuck in an I am self, but still strong enough for that agency to be effective in helping us as a society, as humanity, create art, create love, create policies, create an environment that is conducive for others to undertake this journey ultimately. So that one day maybe we will arrive at what some teachers called a Mahayana democracy. True equality, liberty and freedom where the ultimate freedom is the ability to be free from an own fixated self. This session does not end. We have or we can choose to live our lives as a constant session with this bodhicitta, this aspiration of making a real difference become manifest. I am excited to be able to practice with all of you under the guidance of a marker that points all of us into that direction. Let's go together. This has been a Zen Study Society podcast. If you found it to be of interest, please consider making a donation by visiting zenstudies.org donate. Thank you for listening.